So how many of you were uh, rudely alerted last night at about 10 p.m.? If you live in Delaware County, how many live in Delaware County? You know what I'm talking about. You heard uh, some sort of screeching sound come across your phone letting you know that there was inclement weather outside. Or maybe you heard the shrill sirens blaring uh, somewhere in the distance or nearby uh, telling you that there could be a tornado around. So what'd you do? Because you, you get an alert, you get a warning like that, it elicits a response. A response is required. It's impossible to not respond to something like that, isn't it? What'd you do? Did you run to the basement? Take cover? Did you find an interior room? Did you roll over and just go back to sleep? Or did you, like in my house, you rush to the TV and you try to get a sense of what's going on, you pull up the Doppler radar and you start weighing with your spouse, is it worth waking up my children, <laughs> destroying their night of sleep, and ruining my day tomorrow? A response to the warning sirens is required. A lack of response is still a response. And today we see in our passage that a response is required. Paul, as he's speaking to the Athenians and telling them about who God is, comes to the point in the passage where he calls for a response. And there's no escaping the reality of it being required. Well, the context of our passage is where we've been the last several weeks, uh, verses 22 and following. And Paul comes into the city of Athens. He sees the Athenians there. He observes their practices. He sees what their religious uh, devotion looks like. He sees the idols all over this city. He's uh, drawn to that. And he re references and sees an altar to the unknown God. The Athenians were so concerned about their spiritual situation and their condition that they had an altar to the unknown God. And in the process of his discourse, Paul says to the Athenians, I'm going to tell you who that God is that you don't know about. And he begins to list in verse 24 who that God is. I'll tell you, Paul says, first of all, he's the creator. He has made the world and everything in it. And he's the Lord over all. He is sovereign over heaven and earth. Everything is under his dominion. That's who that unknown God is. And this God that you don't know who you, it is, he does not live in structures built by human hands. The grandest cathedrals, the most magnificent structures that human minds and skill and hands can create cannot contain the greatness and the wonder of this God. He does not live in structures built by human hands. And a few months ago, as I saw Notre Dame up in smoke, I thought of this passage that the grandest cathedrals in the world cannot contain the sovereign creator, Lord of heaven and earth. Not only does he not live in structures built by human hands, Paul says, but he's not served by human hands. He has no need of anyone to serve him in any way. He is self-sustaining, self-sufficient, complete in and of himself. Completely, completely unserved, unneeding of others. On the contrary, Paul continues, he's the giver of life, he's the giver of breath, and he's the giver of everything else. Everything that we enjoy and experience in creation is a gift from him. From one man, Adam, he has made all the nations of the earth. 
All the nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. And he set the exact times and the exact places that everyone should live, past, present, and future. He is orchestrating and ruling over every single detail of every single person's life from first cry to final breath. And He has set times and places where each of us should live. You are in Central Ohio today, 2019, because of God's grand plan and grand orchestration. So that, so that we might seek Him, reach out to Him, and find Him. God has put all of this together, past, present, and future, so that human beings, the creation of His hand, men, women, children, would reach out to Him and find Him. And find His salvation. Our lives and our existence are bound up in Him. This is that unknown God, Athenians, that you don't know who you're serving, who you're worshiping. All humanity, in a physical way, is His offspring. He has created us. The psalmist says it this way, the Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so we come to our text today. It's the climax of Paul's evangelistic appeal. And Paul doesn't shy away or back down. He goes big. And in verse 30, we see that he writes, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And as we look at our outlines and as we turn to our scriptures, the first thing we see is that God has shown merciful restraint. Paul tells the Athenians that in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. He overlooked, in the Athenian situation, their, their futile worship of idols, things that their hands had made. He bore with them in their ignorance and did not judge them instantly. God has shown merciful restraint. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Literally, it, the text would read, having overlooked the times of not knowing. The times of the ignorance. Wait a minute. What's going on here? Did God let those who were ignorant or those who were not knowing off the hook here? Did they get off scot-free? Their sins, did He just slide those under the carpet and let it slip on by? Is that what's going on here? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. That's a little disconcerting, isn't it? But it kind of sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? Hey, if I don't know about it, it must not be that big of a deal. If I'm not aware of it, well then maybe I can get by with it. Maybe I'll just plan to be conveniently ignorant of all kinds of things then. And maybe God will just let that go. Ignorance is bliss, right? After all, if I don't know about it, how could I be responsible for it? How could I be accountable for it? But that's not what's going on here. The word overlooked is a tricky one. It's the only time that it's used in the New Testament. And that gives us extra challenges because we don't have as much to compare it to to understand what it means. But it is used several times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 
meaning to disregard or to cast aside. Someone uh, in their distress would be disregarded. But as we try to understand what God is meaning here as he speaks through Paul, we can understand some of what it is by understanding this term through what we do know to be true. And while the people, the Athenians and others, and us at times, may be ignorant, here's something that we do know. God is not ignorant. He's not ignorant of sin. He's not ignorant of our actions. He sees everything. He sees it all. God is not deliriously often left field unrelated to reality. Something else we know. God will punish all sin. The scriptures clearly tell us that sin cannot go unpunished. For the wages of sin is death. In the moment that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. There are no free passes. God would be inconsistent with his character and his nature if he let sin go unpunished. We know that to be true. We also recognize that the ignorance here referred to was not absolute. Because the pages of scripture tell us in various places that God has made himself known to all people in all situations. Psalm 19 reads this way, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Romans 1 also talks about how God has made himself known. We know that whatever the ignorance is here, it's not an absolute ignorance because God has revealed himself to all of humanity in such a way that no one is with excuse. No one has an excuse, the scriptures tell us. What else we know out of Romans 1 and Ephesians 14 that our ignorance sometimes is a result of our rebellion and resistance to God. It's a natural result when man hardens his heart and rejects God. Ephesians 4.18 reads, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. What we see here in God overlooking the ignorance is his merciful restraint in not pouring out the full extent of his judgment and punishment. 2 Peter 3.9 gives us an understanding of why that could be. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God, in his merciful restraint, has extended opportunity to the Athenians and to those in the past, to us today, to come to faith in Jesus, to repent so that we would not perish because he knows the significance and the finality and the the gruesome horrificness of what it means to resist and rebel and to fall into our eternal judgment. And as we look around in our culture and our society, there are plenty of times and situations where we look at things and we say, how could God let that be? How does God stand by? Why doesn't God intervene? Does he understand? Does he see that injustice? Does he see that? What is he doing? Why is he silent? Why is he passive? How does God put up with all the chaos and injustice in our world? It's because his heart is so great. And in his patience and his forbearance, he desires that 
everyone would come to repentance. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. And so his patience provides opportunity for those who still resist him and still do not come to him. And Paul says to the Athenians here, you have been beneficiaries of God's merciful restraint. But now, now he has an urgent call for you. The second point in our outline. God's urgent call is this. Repent. The second half of verse 30 is, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent is God's urgent call. Paul clearly and boldly presents Jesus to them, and repentance is the only appropriate response to their Creator, the Lord of heaven and earth. Repent. Repent is the call. Repent is the urgent plea. All people everywhere, God's command, respond in repentance. Repent. I wonder how this fell on their ears. What do you think? You know, the Athenians, they were pretty proud. They were pretty wise. They were the intellectual elite. They were the opinion makers and rainmakers, the influencers, the highly esteemed. They had prestigious positions and respect in their culture. Repent? Why? They were probably thinking. Why do I need to repent? Why do I need to do that? They probably had some of the same obstacles that you and I and many today might share when it comes to repentance. You know, we get comfortable in our patterns and our routines and the ways that we go about life, and it's hard to break those patterns. It'd be uncomfortable to make any changes. Or maybe we've grown very comfortable and enjoying our sin and its pleasures for a short time. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to have to make any changes. I, I actually like what's going on, and I'm, I'm pretty good with it, actually. I'm okay. I'm doing okay. Life is fine. I've got it covered. Things are going great. There's nothing wrong in my life. There's nothing that I need to consider or reconsider. I don't need help. And the pride and the embarrassment that, that dwell and are, are, are driven deep within us in our human nature spring up and say, I don't need to repent. It's not easy to say I was wrong. Because to repent means to change direction. And if I'm going to repent, I'm going to have to admit that my pursuits and my passions and my path of life was wrong that I was going the wrong way, and that I was mistaken, and that I need to change. It's not easy to admit. I'm sure the Athenians were struggling with that, and we would today, many of us as well. A week or so ago, my family, Kim and the kids, and her family, her parents, and brothers and spouses and kids had an opportunity to spend a week of vacation in the Williamsburg, Virginia area. And it was a great time being together and um, just enjoying one another and having lots of fun things to do. And while we were there, we stopped in Yorktown and we got to learn about the Battle of Yorktown. This was the, the last and decisive land battle in the Revolutionary War. George Washington and the Continental Army, uh, bolstered by Rochambeau, the French general, 
uh, were there to battle against Cornwallis and the British, taking place in September, October of 1781. The French Navy had come to our support and they had won the Battle of the Chesapeake, providing naval superiority and cutting off any potential reinforcements that the British could have received, kind of strangling them there. And by September 28th, Washington had Cornwallis pressed up against the river, completely surrounded. After three weeks of bombardment, tightening the nooses and bringing the, the lines in closer and closer and the, uh, the relentless artillery battering of the British positions, Cornwallis realized his situation was growing incredibly bleak. He tried to allow his men to escape across the river, but a storm came up and a number of his boats were lost and realized it was impassable and came to this place in recognition and realization that he was desperately unable to stand and hold his position. And he had no other option than to call for surrender negotiations for him and his 7,000 troops. He was so embarrassed he didn't show two days later, claiming to be sick, but sent a subordinate to the actual surrender ceremony. Cornwallis surrendered, but he didn't do so willingly. It was against his will, it was forced, it was bitter. It was painful. God's call to us, His command to repentance, goes beyond a forced involuntary surrender. It goes to a place where we change our minds, we change our direction, we change our position. We recognize that the direction we were going was wrong. And we we re, we re, rebuke that, and we turn in the other direction. It's not simply a self-effort to change our behavior, to cover up what's going on on the inside. It's not gritting and baring our teeth and standing up and laying down our arms before the conquering general. It's turning from the path we've been on. It's turning from ourself. It's turning from our sin. It's recognizing them as repugnant. It's more than surrender. It's a turning to God. It's a change of allegiance. It's a change of heart. And for the Athenians, the call that Paul made to them was to turn from their worthless idols and to the one true God. To stop worshiping the gods that they have made with their hands and worship the God who had made them. Paul defines this further a few chapters later in chapter 20, verse 21 of Acts. He says, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. God's call and command to all people everywhere is to repent. Is to repent. And Scripture is clear that genuine repentance and faith leads to a complete transformation. It's not simply an update. It's not just a new version of the old thing. It's a whole new person, a whole new reality. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us. It's a completely new heart. That's the result of, of genuine repentance and faith. And God's call is to all people everywhere to repent. And so the question for you and to me today is, what have we done with God's urgent call? What have we done? with God's urgent call. Well, that begs the question, why is that so important? A response that seems required, is it really required? Is it really that important? 
Well, Paul continues, and we get the reason in verse 31 is back to our outlines that God has set a day. He has fixed a day, and there is coming judgment. That's why repentance is so important. There's coming judgment. For He has set a day, He has fixed a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. Repent! Repent is the cry. Repent! Do you hear the warning sirens blaring in your ears? There's a judgment day coming. God has set a day. He has fixed a day. Repent. Repent. The warnings are so easy to ignore sometimes, aren't they? Because respond to them can be very inconvenient. can be very uncomfortable. It's so easy to ignore the warning signs. Our vacation provided an example and an illustration of that all too clearly. On our way home, I'm the guy that, that's, that's, let's just say, I'm pretty planned and pretty detailed. I'm the guy that throws in extra tools in the trunk in case something happens that we can fix it. I know where we're going. I, I read the maps. I know how far it is. I know how long it should take. There aren't too many details that get overlooked. But on our way home, I had it all planned out. I knew exactly where we were going to stop for gas. I knew exactly how much gas we had and how many miles that should allow for us. And we were traveling along through the interstates of Virginia. And we stopped for dinner, and it's time to change drivers. So Kim slides into the driver's seat, and I'm just cruising along in the passenger seat. And she says to me casually at one point, uh, the gas light just came on. And I said, okay, I know where we're going to stop. I've got this figured out. I know how much gas we have left. I started doing the calculations in my mind. I knew how far we were going. We had plenty of gas. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. We're good. A little bit later, she's like, this is really making me nervous. That needle's really low. And I said, I've done the calculations. Trust me. Well, you know what happened. About five miles before our designated exit that I had already planned out that was going to save us about $2 in gas, <laughs> we found a nice, comfortable resting spot along the side of Interstate 81 for about two hours as we waited for roadside assistance to come and help us out. There were warning signs everywhere. And I knew better. I was in control. I had done the calculations. I knew that we had enough gas to get there. And even when my wife said, Jonathan, this isn't looking real good, I buried, I dug my hole, and I've made my grave. God has a sense of humor. The warning signs, so easy to ignore. But it does not change the reality of impending judgment. When the gas went out, it was unforgiving. The engine did not go. And there we sat. Paul says to the Athenians and to us today, this unknown God, he will judge the world. This creator, 
the one who's made the world and everything in it, he will judge the world. This Lord, this sovereign over heaven and earth, who has everything under his dominion, he will judge the world. This God, the one who does not live in structures built by human hands, is not served by human hands. As a matter of fact, on the contrary, the one who is a giver of life, the giver of breath, the one who has given everything to all people, he will judge the world. This God who has from one man made all nations and set the exact times and places where they should live so that they could reach out to Him, find Him, and repent. This God, He will judge the world. It's not an if. It's not a maybe. It's a certain reality. And today in our world and today in our culture and maybe in our our own hearts, we don't like the idea of judgment. We don't like the thought that we might be accountable to someone far greater and far more powerful and wonderful than we are. Because that cuts at the idea of our own independence and our own deification. It cuts at the reality that we like to think that we are in control, that we are king of our world. It cuts at our cultural ideas that all paths get there and they're all equally valid and that my way is good and your way is good and don't think about telling me I'm wrong. It cuts at our idea that I'm good and don't tell me otherwise. It cuts at our idea that God is love, right? How could God, if He loves us, how would He he judge? He wouldn't do that. There wouldn't be punishment for sin. He's a loving God, right? God wouldn't actually do that. There couldn't be something as eternal judgment for sin for those apart from Christ who don't repent. How fair is that? God would never do that. Let's just love one another and get along. It's not fair. How could that be? Our culture would say, some of us might say, You see, the cross is where the love and justice of God meet in perfect balance and perfect harmony. God can't be just if He lets sin go unpunished. Sin has to be paid for. His wrath will find its rightful place. Otherwise, He is not just. But He shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus, the perfect Son of God, came and He died on the cross in our place, absorbing God's wrath for all sin of all people of all time. That's what love is. It's not a laissez-faire, live and let live, do what you want, believe what you believe, go the direction you want to go, it's all going to work out in the end. That's not love. Love is the image of the Son of God bearing the wrath of God on the cross on behalf of all. And if you want to know what's not fair, that's what's not fair. Because you and I and everyone who has ever lived are under the wrath of God and deserve the punishment that Jesus took. And what's foolish 
is to turn our backs on that offer of forgiveness. And, and what's foolish is to, to not respond to his invitation to repent and to say, no, I'm good, I've got it, I, I can do this on my own. Because judgment day is coming. The day has been set, the day has been fixed. The entire world will be judged. No exclusions, no escape, no one slipping through on the coattails of someone else. And if you want proof, look to Jesus who God has raised from the dead, the one that God has appointed as judge. In God's magnificent and wondrous and indescribable plan, He's taken His Son who has become our sin in our place, bearing the wrath of God and has exalted Him, raised Him from the dead, and now Jesus will be the judge. Jesus is the one to whom has been said all authority and power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And his justice, his judgment will be with justice. Everything will be exposed, nothing will be hidden. No one will be able to say, He has been unfair. When the final gavel has fallen, every last one of us will say, He has done what is right and good. And that day of judgment that's coming will either be terrifying or triumphant, fearsome, or fantastic. And it all hinges on, it all depends on what has been done with Jesus. Paul didn't shy away from the necessity of repentance and the certainty of coming judgment as he spoke to the Athenians. And neither should we as we seek to share about the good news of Jesus with others. Paul wasn't timid to put the spotlight squarely on the risen Jesus, and neither should we. With respect and with grace and with truth, we proclaim and we profess Jesus. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the coming victor, the conqueror, the judge, the one who has all power and all authority. Terrifying or triumphant that day will be. And it all depends on what we've done with Jesus. See, God's made us in His image to know Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him forever. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death. We are under God's wrath in line to receive His punishment, His just punishment for our sins. But God in His great love sent His one and His only Son, Jesus. Jesus, in obedience to the Father, left the throne of heaven. He came to this place, lived a perfect life, died a gruesome death as an innocent man, in which He took upon Himself the wrath of God against our sin. And three days later, God raised Him from the dead, proving Him to be who He said He was, and that He had the power, He has the power, to forgive sins. And so today, the urgent call from heaven comes to us. Repent. 
A response is required to turn from our sins and to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. To stop worshiping the gods that our hands have made and to worship the God who has made us. And an imagine, a, a magnificent and an extraordinary exchange when we do Jesus takes his righteousness and he clothes us in it. He takes our sin and he has credited his righteousness to our account. The debt has been paid. The price has been paid. The wrath of God has been satisfied. And the righteousness of Jesus is ours. And on that day, when we stand before him as judge and he looks at us, he sees his righteousness. He sees his righteousness. And we stand in the day of judgment. Warning a judgment day is coming. God's urgent call repent. And the question to us today is what have you done with this Jesus? Are you ready for God's set judgment day? If not, don't ignore the warnings. 2 Corinthians 6 says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's favor. Respond to Him today in repentance and faith. Meet Him today as Savior so that you don't have to meet Him as judge. Unprepared. And if you do know Him, are you actively sharing his urgent call with others. Boldly, courageously, intentionally, proactively. In the places where God has set you, in this time, in this place, interacting with people that God has put in our path, in your path, so that we could be the ones who profess and proclaim the goodness of God's favor, His mercy and grace. Are you actively sharing His urgent call? For in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof to this to all men by raising Him from the dead. O oh God in heaven, I pray that You would stir in our hearts I pray that you would arouse us from slumber and indifference and sleep. I pray if anyone is here today who has not responded to your urgent call, who still is trusting in themselves to stand before you, that today would be the day that they would turn in repentance and faith to Jesus, the risen Lord, the coming King, the conquering Victor, and the one day judge. And God, for those of us who have responded, I pray that we would life, live life with a seriousness and a purpose and a passion where we proclaim the call, the urgent call, the urgent invitation to others of your greatness and your glory. The day of your favor, the day of salvation. And God, that we would do that with urgency, with clarity with conviction and with joy. 
Father, as we sing, as we sing, I pray that this moment you would speak and convict and challenge our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.